Folks, welcome inside the Parisi Palace, high above 3773 East Broadway. This is a live edition of the Jake Feinberg Show, comedy on Power Talk. Thank you so much for making us part of your day today. And um, as things tend to go on this on this uh, sort of mission that I'm on, uh, I tend to vacillate between my elders, people that came before me on the bandstand, and then my peer group. Um, people that are uh, looking to be authentically creative in all genres of music. And um, I've had a chance uh, during the this pandemic and sort of this pause to uh, interview a really fantastic drummer and a, and a great cat, Aaron Spursky. And he he was he grew up, um, uh, you know, dwelling uh, on, you know, have, hanging out with his friends, but um, uh, dwelling with uh, the great Warren Marsh, a very angular, unique player. And uh, so even though Spursky's not necessarily a, uh, a jazzer per se, uh, he definitely tries to incorporate those aesthetics into whatever music he's playing. And he was like, hey, man, you might want to be hip to to my mom's husband. Uh, he's a pretty decorated drummer. And uh, sure enough, um, I was looking this cat up, and uh, he's really had quite a remarkable career in a music that was born in this country but quite frankly has never been supported in this country it's really one of those things that continues to vex me although i do understand that it has something to do with the color of skin and the fact that um well there's a lot of reasons but the bottom line is that uh the music that he has um been responsible for and helped create um has been consumed much more in europe and in Japan, uh, and appreciated over there, uh, than it ever has in the United States of America. That being said, um, he's had many transcendent bandstand experiences with really the masters of this music. Uh, what an honor. Tim Pleasant, welcome to the Jake Feinberg Show. Oh. Well, thank you. Happy to be here. You know, we have a game on this program called Name That Voice. Um, I'm going to put this voice in for you, take a listen to the content. And we'll come back and talk about it. Okay. Well, we yeah the the uh, club uh, I think they owed Mingus uh, about a, a couple thousand dollars, and um, they didn't have it or didn't pay him for whatever reason. And um, it was kind of like the Sopranos. I mean, these <laughs> these, these guys might have been you know they, everything you you you. <laughs> it was like looking at the at a movie. A Tony know? Soprano, right? Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Uh, and very, it's very possible that they they were all of that. And um, but anyway, Mingus, you know, upon hearing that the money wasn't available, he he became enraged, and actually started destroying this very nice, expensive piano. But how did he destroy it specifically? Well, he actually uh, Mingus was big. You know, he weighed three hundred pounds. He was probably five eleven or something like that. And he was at that time. I think he was early forties. So. Uh, he was strong and uh, and enraged, and he uh, proceeded to go inside of the piano and pull the strings out. <laughs> that and, is and, so. Yeah, which is incredible. That's incredible. That's a tremendous amount of pressure on piano strings. In fact, years ago they used to show um, how how much how strong piano strings were by lifting locomotives up with them. So uh, anyway, he plucked yeah. them out and. Um, <laughs> And uh, I thought that this was going to be uh, everybody, in the, you know, we'd all get killed, uh, you know. Exactly. You know, with Wet. this and Wet. then being the kind of club that this was. And uh, instead, 
I think they were so awestruck that that somebody would be that uh, that out of control and that they actually just sort of looked at it happen and realized that this guy was maybe crazier than they were. Right. Tim Pleasant, you want to take a guess at who that is? Oh, man. <laughs> I, you know, I... I would never play anyone for yeah. you that you didn't... Uh, 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 create with so that that may it, it's somebody you've played with oh my god um <laughs> well i'm trying to think of associations with mingus and um maybe jackie buyer well you no, i mean i you know and i jackie's jackie left this planet before i started my show that was uh ah, so exactly. i i started my 10 years ago i started my show one of my first interviews with was with this cat and he dropped that story that was charles mcpherson Oh, Charlie! Yeah, and well, you know, I, I yeah. go ahead. I, I, I've had um, a couple of associations with Charles. Um, I was never part of his regular band. Um, however, um, I, I did have like one gig like years ago, maybe twenty-five years ago, in, in uh, Ireland, and then maybe one in California. Um, but you know, honestly, I, I haven't or spoke to him in quite a long time but uh, that, that's, a, that's an amazing story well what I wanted to you know because, yeah. so just to fill it in I didn't let him finish the story but then so once the mafia cats were like freaked out by Mingus then they left him alone and then Dolphy sat down at a table and said by the way Charles I'm leaving the band <laughs> like I'm gonna go out on my own and Mingus is like I'm gonna kill yeah, you yeah. I'm gonna kill you and so he <laughs> he challenged him to a knife fight and uh, they obviously oh, man. you know so he, I, I guess what I'm trying to say is this man like you really came up at a time when vocabulary in improvisational music was still growing and a lot of it a lot of the clubs and a lot of the venues that people not only did you have audiences to play to but the venues themselves were really run by the mafia without the sicilians there'd be no jazz in america and i kind of wanted you to talk a little bit about um you know the the ability for you to develop your own sound on the bandstand because there were just so many places to play and quite honestly it was just much more hip culturally when you were really coming up well you know i um being from chicago uh i you know i started you know, as a teenager, and I got together with a couple of buddies, uh, and we were, you know, playing at each other's homes, garages, or whatever. Um, but being from the South Side, uh, and, and this is like in the '60s, um, it was, you know, it, it was a time when, it, you know, gangs were happening. I was like the South Side, of Chicago, and you know, my parents. I wanted to go, you know, downtown and to other parts of the city to uh, hear these great bands. Of course, I was too young to get in, but, you know, I, I could just as easily, you know, sit outside and listen to the window. But, sure. you know, my parents were pretty protective, so I, I just didn't, uh, I missed out on, on, like, early associations with, like, jazz musicians. Then, I, you know, I, I went to college in Iowa, and, you know, I, I had some associations with some good musicians there. But it wasn't until I moved to Minneapolis with uh, a couple of buddies and we had, um, you know, an original band where I started to interface with 
other musicians, whether they were um, residents of Minneapolis or St. Paul and have since moved on to become, you know, mainstream musicians, uh, you know, in, in the jazz community, or, you know, people that were coming in from New York um, and, you know, just getting an idea outside of my own little world what it was like to, you know, to to play like uh, just the musicianship and such. And then I, I moved to New York and then the, the, wanting to really inf, uh, get the full influence of, of, you know, the energy in the city. And, and that's where I really learned, um, you know, where I stood in terms of my proficient, proficiency and, and what I could um, aspire to. Um, I, I think I, I moved in 1978 and that that was during the loft period. Do you, you remember the loft period? Well, actually, the I was. I was. Period? What's funny is I was born in '78. But the thing is that, um, ah, you know, so so I mean, this is all. I didn't. Yeah. I didn't. I, I specifically didn't give you a lot of information because I I just wanted to go uh, as fresh as possible. Oh, yeah. But I mean, like, I mean, I'm doing this. This is not about preservation. This is about promotion of how real music is made. So I would imagine. Oh yeah. You were playing with. Um, or maybe you got a chance to play with Bobby Lyle or Hubert Eaves and those cats. I, you know, um, I I haven't. I mean, I they were around, and uh, you know, I I was certainly around. But it's this whole thing with connections and and like you know, putting yourself out there, you know, being in uh, just going wherever you can just to make connections, um, whether they're jam sessions, going to gigs, and just you know, having the courage to step up to you know, great musicians and say, Hey, I, I'm, I'm in town. I'm a new drummer. Um, you know, I would appreciate any, um, advice you would have to give me, but getting back to the loft thing, it, it was, it, it was basically a scene where, you know, you, there would be a space, whether it's on the second floor, or third floor. And instead of having, you know, tables and chairs, there were just like couches and it was kind of like a scene where there's there were great bands and you would just kind of be lounging on the couch you could bring your own wine or beer or whatever um and it was a great um environment to just kind of relax and hear jazz but basically i i um you know i i i didn't connect as well as i would have liked to during my period in new york which was about 21 years however i did have some fantastic uh, opportunities. Um, I had, you know, uh, you know. I want to. I want to ask you something because because uh, you're 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 hitting it on. I was just bringing up Hubert Eves and Bobby Lyle because those guys were like Minnesota, you know, uh, stalwarts. Oh yeah, yeah. But no, th here's yeah, the thing. I want to. They were gone. Bobby yeah, I you know I want to read this to you and then and then have you riff on it because I'm a Long Island cat and I grew up going to my grandparents' house on the Lower West Side in the 80s and 90s. But this is what Hubert, when I interviewed Hubert Eves, he told me, and I just want you to riff on this because it leads into the the loft scene because I'm sure, I don't know when the last time you were in New York, but it's kind of gotten like, it's like the Disneyland of New York now. You know, it's like been gentrified. Oh, yeah, yeah. And I, you know, so... Well, I was there two years ago. So you know. So this is what he said when he moved when he moved to New York, I guess around 73, a couple years before you got there, he said, when I got to New York, everything was drab. Everything from clothing to the colors of the streets. That's the way I saw it. 
So you could be sitting on a subway and sitting next to a major star and never know it. And I just, I wanted you to talk about the colors of New York City and I don't really, okay, so be it. You, you didn't wind up becoming a mainstay in New York, but to me, it had everything to do, you used the word earlier, something about imagery, everything related to this melting pot of incredible esoteric music, the loft scene was one of them, but it just, it had nothing, yeah. today, all the culture's been pushed off the street, all the culture's been pushed away, you go to the birthplace of jazz, one of them, uh, in Harlem, it's basically, you know, upper middle class, you know, different types of people, but they've pushed all the cultural heritage off the street, and you still were able to taste that. So, can you share like a a story or oh, yeah? Yeah, go ahead. Well, uh, what was it? Um, Fifty Fourth uh, Street. There was a street. Fifty Second Street. You know, yeah, my memory is yeah. Fifty Second. Fifty Second Street. Yep. I was there when Fifty Second Street was kind of on its last leg. Exactly. Um, I remember seeing photos, you know, in the heyday of just. Monk and train, you know, on 52nd Street, blah, blah, blah. And when I kind of, you know, walked up and down or rode my bicycle up and down the street, there were still, you know, I, I'm not remembering the club, the names of the clubs, but uh, what was left, it, it was still kind of there. Uh, and I had the chance to play in one, one space. But, you know, it, it didn't seem like more than a couple of years ago that all of that was just kind of like blown away and you know now like they're uh, skyscrapers and such but you know i did capture some of the flavor because th the cats that i did meet who were able to experience that culture of 52nd street um were still kind of they were much older than me you know but i i would i would you know get the essence of of uh you know life on 52nd Street. Who were these cats? Who and, were some of these uh, cats? Who were some of them? Oh, man. Um, they, they were guys that maybe a lot of people wouldn't even know. Um, Jake Feinberg would know them. Well, they, they, <laughs> well they, the, this one friend of mine, uh, well, actually, he was, I was employed by him. His name was Pepe Morielli. Wow. <laughs> and, uh, I know, don't know that cat. Sicilian guy from... Huh? I love this dude. I've never heard of that cat. Oh, well, you know he 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 was um, director of uh, for Carol Channing, but he was a great jazz. He was director of music for Carol Channing, so I guess that's how he made his bread. But you know, long after that association with her, you know, he was just a you know a, a player that would play. Speaking of Long Island, he would. Uh, play you know um all the places in the hamptons and in particular um what's what's the town sorry that i can't remember no i know what you're it, it, it was like oh, like uh like furthest on the south shore yeah um like the very end. I, I i i know exactly a lot of billy mitchell used to play out there all the time i can't remember the name of the club yeah, yeah. but anyway i mean he i mean we i would have a summer gig with him out there on a bass player and we would, you know, just play in the lounge, you know, and he's playing tunes. And his favorite pianist was um, Teddy Wilson. And, I mean, I learned a lot from um, him. And he, he was just telling me, like, his, his years, you know, like floating around um, 52nd Street, you know, like the cats did. They would 
on their breaks, they would go and hear another band, you know, uh, while they're playing. And, and, and then I, just, that, I got the sense of that's how everyone learned. You know, they would go to each other's gigs, listen to them play, sit in, and, and you know, just like an amazing thing. But, you know, when I, when I was there, that was starting to feather away. But, um, you know, I, I did, I, I was just a frequent um, attendee of, you know, like the Vanguard and um, I don't know, like Seventh Avenue South. I don't. Oh my God, that was the Brecker, the Brecker Brothers Club right there. Yeah, yeah dude, the you were. Brothers. I mean, I'm telling you, the late seventies. It was still. I mean, they definitely were. It's still it, happening. It was yeah. still cooking. You know, I mean, it was. It was. It. It was yeah. especially. I just, you know, um, I guess I, I was like thinking that. Um, that you were, you know, I just, David Murray, did you get a chance to hang with Murray at all? Oh, I did. I think I actually may have even done a gig with him. I, I, I played with Frank Lowe. Sure. Um, recorded, recorded with a couple of records with him. In fact, he was the first cat that I met uh, when I moved to New York. Um, I, I had like some cassette tapes and I had gotten his number from a friend um, that was a downbeat writer who was unfortunately since passed away. But um, I, I just called Frank and I said, Frank, um, friend of uh, this cat that gave me a number, he invited me over to his place and he played it and, you know, he liked it and all. And then he just needed a drummer um, for his, um, well, he was, I think he was going on a tour, which, yeah, it was a tour to Italy and, and London, which he hired me to, to play that. But it, it wasn't a long association, but... No, it's fine. This I, is I, what he... I, I, when I interviewed him, he said, he said, when I came to New York, the whole loft jazz thing was going on, and that was a split dichotomy between the bebop cats and, and the outcats. I was one yeah, who yeah. always straddled the line. Uh through playing with Bobby Bradford, I made sure to learn both sides, and that's what's given me long a little longevity. You know, I mean, that's the point is that can you even talk about I'm, – I'm fascinated with the loft scene because uh, it's not something I'm totally hip to. Uh, you know, I haven't studied all the music, but it seems to me like it allowed people – that didn't necessarily know the Great American Songbook or couldn't play bebop tunes, but they had their own sort of out, I mean, out jazz. Can you talk about that fissure and if you actually straddled both lines, you know, the more bop purist side and the, and the more outside? Well, you know, um, I think the loft scene was, you know, I first heard about it in the early 70s. I was, God, where was I? I was in, I went to school in Iowa City. So I was in Iowa City, through 75 and then Minneapolis through 75 to 78. And, but I had been hearing about the loft scene since the early seventies, just by reading downbeat or whatever. Um, but my experience when I got to New York and, and, uh, you know, like 23rd street, I, I forget the name. I can't remember. It's the okay. Names of yeah, it's fine. Places, but you know, it, it, it I, I, in my opinion, it, it was a much looser scene, like say, like a, as opposed to going to the the, um, the the vanguard, you know, where like very established, you know, right, world, right, like, right, right, playing, and they were playing their their music, but 
what I experienced in Los Angeles is hearing cats that, you know, are like locals uh, and they were maybe, you know, sidemen with maybe Blakey or, or whoever, Elvin Jones. Um, but I didn't hear Blakey or Elvin Jones there. I heard these other cats. <laughs> bands, and you were and you were and you were playing traps and you were playing traps, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, I love this. Um, I love and, it. You know, and they were, you know, like it, it was stretching out and they had a chance to, to develop their own scene, you know, like their their own compositions, style of playing. And, you know, whether it was like more on the free side or, or just kind of straight ahead or like to, like the, the post-bop. But talking about straddling both sides, what that means to me is like, you know, playing like a, kind of the traditional not traditional like back in the 30s jazz but like you know like bebop absolutely bebop and, and, absolutely and, and post-bop and then um you know really going to uh, like the free jazz side or or like to me frank lowe was definitely like avant-garde but in in, in some senses like he, he had like a structure uh and well to me like free music has structure but um frank's the music that I played with Frankie had a definite head um, and, um, and and you would improvise around that head, but you weren't um, boxed in with like, you know, like 32 bar courses, that kind of thing. <laughs> so, um, and before I got to New York, like my buddies and, and I that like, you know, playing in, in, in college and the band room and then, you know, playing at our band house in Minneapolis, we were doing everything from fusion, you know, to learning pop songs uh, and then just, you know, like playing free stuff, you know, the way we thought it should be played because we listened to a lot of that. And um, when I did get to New York and I had a chance to play with Frank, I, I'm glad that I did a lot of listening, you know, well, like David Murray. Um, well, no, I just I, I want I, I want to get your opinion on this because this is really important. He said, um, "In free music, the drums became a mosaic of different sound patterns, almost like waves in the ocean or scout sound sketches. Some musicians can't yeah. play bebop, but there are musicians that can play in a sound sketch kind of idea." It allowed a lot of, this is the more exactly. the law scene, it allowed a lot of people who wouldn't have been able to play bebop to actually get on the stage and play. As a result, a lot of charlatans got up there who didn't really know their horn or their instrument. And then there were guys who couldn't swing, and then Anthony Braxton came along and he allowed a lot of people who sounded like him to come in who couldn't actually make the attack or rhythmic impetus. You know, I mean, there's no right or wrong answers on the Jake Feinberg show, uh, Tim. I just, I, to me, like, yeah. you... You, the bottom line is you had the experience, much like David Murray did with Bobby Bradford and John Carter and, and Horace Tapscott, to yeah. experience, I mean, I think that's what jazz means to me. Jazz means freedom. That's why my show is, it's unbridled freedom. Oh, yeah. It's unbridled. And I just, to me, yeah. it was intoxicating. Can you talk about, um, you know, ultimately, like, like how you found your own individual sound, no matter what the setting, no matter what kind of music, how you were able to keep time and then as well, you know, be, be able to play melodically as well. Wow. That, that's, that's a lot. Um, what I'm going to do is just 
tell you. Go where you want to go. You know, what what I, you know, from the beginnings of, of deciding that I was a jazz drummer and how these influences just kind of molded me into what I am now. And right now, you know, it, it could be, it could change, but you know, um, I'll just start from, you know, my, what I would consider the, uh, my style of playing, which was, I was heavily influenced by Tony Williams and, and Elvin and, uh, you know, Jack DeJanette and like all, you know, cats of the day. Um, so when I got to New York, I was, you know, ready to like start bashing, you know, like <laughs> we call it bashing. Oh, know? I did. No, I did. Yeah. Balls, balls out if that's okay to say. Oh, yeah. sure. No, I mean, also, I just um, want to be clear the the time that you were digging into Elvin, Tony, we're talking like mid to late sixties, yeah. that mid to late sixties records. Well, right? yeah. Yeah. The Miles Davis association with Tony Williams, um, and, um, you know, like along with that, like Art Blakey, a totally different drummer. Totally. Uh, but I was heavily influenced by Tony and, um, and then, um, Alphonse Mizan, does that ring a bell? Dude, I interviewed, I, I got, I, I'll send you my interview with him. What a rest in peace, man. What a badass. Oh yeah. Yeah. Great. Well, that, that's what I was aiming for. And like, this is just a, you know, a, a, a time date, whatever, uh, progression from like the seventies sure. to like now, um, I, like I said, I hooked up with Frank Lowe, so I, I got like a, a, an education to what it's like to play, you know, in that genre. And I learned a lot too about like volume because I, I figured like, you know, the harder, louder I played, you know, the better. But Frank sat me down and said, listen, man, you can, your energy, you, you can, you, you can have energy without blowing everybody's ears out, you know, drowning everybody out. <laughs> I love out. it, dude. I can, love it. You can play you can play soft and still have that energy. Uh, Dennis Charles, uh, he was like a drummer that played with Frank a lot, and he was in that whole scene with, um, you know, the, the free playing, the avant-garde scene. And I, I would watch him, and like he's going and so creative, but you know his volume never reached, you know, like buried everyone else. And that's one of the things I learned through the years is that. If you can't play, if you if you play and you can't hear like the bass player or the horn player or the piano player, then you're playing too loud, you know. So you you're in a supportive role um, a lot of the times, and you know the band has to work together. In other words, uh, well, you're talking about dynamics. So you're talking about serious dynamics. dynamics. Yeah, dynamics. So, so I learned a lot about dynamics working with Frank. But um, here comes my association with Warren Marsh. Um, or the, the Lenny Tristano scene. Um, at the same time I was playing with Frank, uh, I met a trumpet player and a singer by the name of Simon Wettenhall. Um, and at the time he was hanging with the uh, great singer Judy Nemack, who I believe is living in either Germany or, or France now. But they were students of Warren's and Simon, the trumpet player, got my name from a friend in Minneapolis. Oh, but anyway, so uh, talking about uh, my association with uh, Lenny Trist the, the Tristano scene, um, 
and I, I kind of got involved in that through meeting this trumpet player, Simon, and his um, partner, Judy. And I would go to jam sessions and meet other players that studied with Lenny or studied with Warren. But when I started playing, I was doing this whole Tony Williams thing, and it just didn't fit. Right. So I just started scratching my head because I didn't know who Warren Marsh or, or Lenny Tristano was at the time. Um, but I realized that there was this getting back to dynamics again. Most of those bass players were playing gut strings and no amp. Absolutely. So they were getting Absolutely. A, a, nice, a nice strong sound. But, um, and they could, they could, you know, if they had to made themselves, if they had to play in, at a certain volume so they could be heard without an amp, they could do it. But I realized, man, I'm just playing too, too loud and I can't hear them. So I have to like bring it down. And that's when I started to put two or two together. Like, you know, what Frank was telling me, you, you can kind of create that energy, uh, at a lower volume and, and at the same time, you know, I was uh, kind of realizing how it fit in with like a vocalist, because I was also playing with a lot of vocalists that studied with Warren or Sa uh, well, Sal Mosca as well. He was a student of Lenny Tristano. And um, I don't know, I just grew to appreciate, um, you know, like dynamics. And, well, it's, I mean, it's, yeah. I spent most of my show talking to guys like, you know, Mike Maynary and people like that who literally, oh, you know, yeah. they'd be like on tour with Buddy Rich and, you know, there'd be no, the, the most of the stuff was not amplified. I mean, there were not amplified. Not. And so you, you know, your ears were huge. And that's the issue yeah. today in modern music is that in the studio or in uh, a live setting is that I don't hear any dynamics. When I interviewed Bernard Purdy, he said, it, it's out of the question if you're not playing with dynamics. All the hits that he made oh, yeah. came from that. And I don't hear that in modern-day pop music, and I don't hear a lot of oh, it. No. You know, and, and, I, and, it, and, it's, and that's yeah. one reason I want to do my show is because it's that burning energy. It doesn't mean you have to bash. Like, I mean, Elvin, exactly. somehow he did it so tastefully. You know, I mean, it was never like, oh, he's being obnoxious. It was just like burning. But he's like... Well, you know, I mean, there's an ability to play with quiet fire, you know? Exactly, yeah. I mean, I heard, I had the opportunity to hear, hear Elvin a couple of times live. And, um, I mean, his energy, which drove the band, um, the band members had to come up to his energy, you know? Exactly, um, yeah. And if he got, if he played loud, sometimes you, you know, you, you may, you have to play loud. You know, but it's it, um, his band members knew like what he wanted, you know. Um, so I wouldn't consider I, I would have considered myself a basher just because I figured like you just have to, you know, smash the cymbals and play as loud as you could to be impressive. But Elvin always and, and the other cats, they always had that control. You know, they they could bring it down, bring it up and. And they, that brings me to like another thing that I really learned a lot about is, is um, listening. I believe, and you know, any musician that's worth their salt, if you will, you have to listen to each other 
So, which means that, and that's where dynamics come from. If you're following a soloist and he's starting out like a chorus at a soft volume, then everyone has to come down, you know, um, because you're supporting the soloist. But, you know, if, if the soloist, you know, just comes in at the next chorus and, and he's burning, then, um, you know, like you're going to have to burn along with him. But keeping in mind that, you know, like you, you're supporting this soloist and you're going to match his energy and, you know, the volume will find its own way. In other words, it, you know, the volume will, will match the energy and what's coming out of the soloist, if, if that makes sense. Uh, no, I mean, that's uh, what Barry Atchell said. He said that Sam Rivers told him, he's like, I don't need you to play loud necessarily i just want you to keep the yeah. energy keep the energy up keep the energy up. exactly you know and like give yes, me, and like yes. jackie mclean would say give me all you got give me all you got yeah. you know like and yeah. that doesn't mean play louder play harder it it is based on what is needed i mean serve serving the song i mean it's just to serve the song yeah. if it's a ballad if it's for sure you know and i think that that is um reggie workman told me that um you know, he could go see Younger Cats play a 45-minute set of, you know, straight-ahead jazz, and the drummers, and modern drummers, do not touch the cymbals. They've lost, uh, Joe Sample said that that a lot of modern, you know, younger ah. drummers have lost, have, have, have forgotten or lost the ability to recognize the colors of the cymbals. And I guess, I you know, I mean, to me, one of the magical things about listening to jazz at a certain time is that the bass the bass drum was not that prevalent on recordings so as a result you heard a lot of people keeping time on the top of the kit and they had this incredible way of um that's you know i just you, the bass drum maybe was used for rebound or for accent but it was not used for keeping heavy heavy time and i just wanted you to talk yeah. a little bit about like especially let's be clear i mean that word fusion, I mean, the first fusion music was Chano Pozo and Dizzy Gillespie, right? I mean, that was like 40, oh, yeah. you know. Yeah. So I know yeah, what you're yeah. talking about. You're talking about like electric blends of blues and jazz and funk and rock. But yeah. when did you... Well, you know... Oh, sorry. Yeah, no, just, I mean, when? how did you discover the beautiful colors? Was there a time in your career or even before you got to New York when you recognized that, um, you know, you just learned to be able to keep time on the top of the kit? Well, you know, um, as a new student, um, I, I studied with a, a, a really good teacher that, um, you know, he wasn't like a, he knew what jazz beats sounded like, but he had me read the stuff and, you know, it, it goes to like, four, you know, playing 4-4 four, four on the bass drum, which is more out of the, you know, like the big band era. Exactly, uh, exactly. I would say. And then um, this is what um, I remember reading this article about um, Kenny Clark, who, from what I understand, because I'm not a historian, that he was like the first cat to kind of take the drum set into the modern era, like, <laughs> yep. into, into, in, into bebop. And, you know, like when he was playing, you know, maybe back in the early 40s, late 30s, there was this method of playing called digging coal is what he called it. And it was like keeping time on the snare drum, literally. And the, there was no ride cymbal really. It was just like 
accents and such, and then playing bass drum on four. And he just kind of developed this um, style of playing where, you know, like you, you would play time on the, on the, on the ride cymbal, you know, like ding, ding, a ding, ding, a ding, accents on the left hand and lightening up on the bass drum. Um, so basically uh, I, I'm, I was kind of coming from his, not knowing it, I was coming from his uh, establishment of what modern jazz drumming sounds like to me, and and, 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 and like uh, I don't know, like Philly Joe, um, Art Blakey, they kind of took that and and moved forward. Um, so essentially, um, I like time on the high. Uh, I think I know what you're talking about. Like a lot of yeah, no, I, 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 this you're you. By the way, the, the, we we're, I know we're all over the place, but this is classic. I mean, yeah. I wonder. This is from a guy named Ed Sof. I, I I oh yeah okay. I don't know him, but I know his history. I want so I interviewed him, and and this is what he said because I because what you said is what I believed for a long time about uh, Kenny Clark Kluke, and this is what he told me in our interview. He said, <clears throat> I would read books how Kenny Clark was the first drummer to quit playing four on the floor and use it like he would his left hand to play non-repetitive comping figures. I could never really yeah. figure out what he was doing until I met Ed Thigpen. He had, oh, yeah. he had seen Kenny Clark live. One day we were talking and he said, you know, one thing that really makes me angry is these guys who write these jazz history books and come out with all these ridiculous statements. The one that kills me is that Kenny Clark revolutionized jazz drumming because he quit playing the bass drum on all four beats. Ed said that is absolutely false. He played soft four on the floor and accented within that, same way Max Roach did, same way yeah. Blakey did. I got some recordings yeah. of Tony Williams with Miles where if you have a good amplifier and can switch channels, you can hear him playing soft four on the bass drum. So in any event, you know, I... I, I like to go well, and I because I mean he and listen the bottom line is this I've other you know the other thing is that he didn't he um it was just nuanced it not everything was miked and you know everybody was coming up with their own way of playing so it's just it, to me that's why I love going after you cats because individuality on your instrument and within the group having a conversation these are things that for whatever reasons, and there's a lot of them have, have gone away. And, and, and I, and, you know, I just, I think that, um, it's not even about necessarily keeping time on the kid or four on the floor and this and that. It's just, I, I just think that I'd like you to talk to people out there, especially younger cats about how, well, how, how to find their own individual sound, you know? Well, here's, you know, like it's because of my, uh, what you what you said that uh, the, the statements that uh, you read about Ed Sof yes and Ed Thigpen um, I agree with that and the reason why I brought brought up like four four um, on the uh, four on the floor or whatever it, it, what I'm talking about is just like just it it, it was so defined and and kind of just overpowered everything else and to me at the time it just sounded so unhip however. Um, realized to actually um, embarrassed to say um, not too long ago that what you said about um, Max Roach and and uh, Tony and 
and in particular, um, um, Philly Joe. Yeah. Because I was listening to a, an interview. Um, I don't know who, who was interviewing him, but he, he said that you know I I play four four on 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 the, on the bass drum, but you're not you know it, it's like you were saying it, it's very light, and it's just you know kind of using it as, as uh, yeah, it's called like feathering. It's called feathering, right? Feathering the bass. Yeah, exactly. I love and, I exactly. love that. it's a lost art, man. I mean, did you learn yeah. how did when was the first gig? Before Iowa, were you already feathering the bass drum? I was only if it was the blues. <laughs> that, that was that was the, my inexperience, and and you know, like uh, like I, I wasn't hearing everything that Ed Thigpen, who you know, was just totally you know, like yeah. a master yeah. and experience. I wasn't hearing it, and I wasn't exposed to it because um, had I gone and heard, you know, Ed Thigpen play a gig, I would have seen it for myself and heard it for myself and, and just would have, I, I would have had a revelation. Oh man, you can do that. And, and it sounds as hip as anything else. And I mean, it's gone. It, it, it just turned me around basically, especially when I read what Philly Joe was saying. So to try to answer your question, I, I really didn't start doing that until, you know, maybe 15 years ago and just playing with it. And just realizing, um, you know, what can be done with that, um, you know, the, the whole feathering thing. And um, it also kind of gives me an anchor. And I, I remember there's some some great players out on the West Coast. Uh, I mean, was there – I'm curious, like, up till that point, uh, I mean, that's fine that you started feathering 15 years ago, but even in the – Fusion bands, I mean, you were just basically using the bass drum. I mean, how were you using the bass drum? Only the reason I say that is I I, I don't think that there's um, – I think it's a lost art in music today, feathering. And I think that uh, – Yeah. And I think it's important – I just wanted to know what you were doing up to that point in any context. Could have been with Solstice or any of the jazz stuff. How were you using the bass drum? Well, I – all I can tell you is that I, I was coming from, I was heavily influenced by Liddy White, you know, with Chikalia. Oh, my man, Turner dude. Forever. I love this dear friend of mine, uh, man. Yeah. Oh. Uh, dude, the dude, is, the dude is just ridiculous, dude. Redi I mean, the the, yeah. the the red clay with Freddie Hubbard, it's insane. Yes. That, that, that's what we were trying to do. We, basically, we would just, I mean, we did, we had original stuff, but it was coming out of that, that type of fusion. Um, so, I mean, I was just, you know, doing, uh, kind of like a, a an upgraded version of like James Brown. <laughs> you know, or, yeah, no, I mean, dude, do you have tape? I need some tapes of that. Do you have tapes of that stuff? God, you know, I do have. We got to get a tape of that. I got to hear what you were playing like. Cause I mean, it was, it must've been nasty, man. That stuff was, cause well, it was like just merging acoustic and electric instrumentation right around that early seventies period. Yeah. I mean. If you listen, you know, if you heard what Lenny Lenny White was doing, you know, in the mid seventies, you could imagine what I was trying to do and, and just kind of throwing in some of my old stuff, own, you know, essence. Um, maybe not quite as, you know. Um, well, there's only one Lenny White. You know, I, I mean. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Tim, uh, I got another name that voice for you again. I think you're going to get this one. Uh, take a listen to it. And we'll come back.
No. First time I ever even heard about Charlie Parker was 56, he died, and I was in high school. I was coming home in a car with some uh, other hip jazz cats like Joe Hunt. He was a drum from Richmond, Indiana. And, uh, I mean, these kind of cats, man, they wore the sunglasses at night, you know. Oh, my love. I need, well, you were wearing sunglasses at night, dude. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, I saw these guys, uh, they teared up that afternoon. We were coming home from school, going someplace, and I said to them, I said, what happened? And they said, Charlie Parker died today. And then the wow. first time I heard a bird. And I knew he had to be something, because these were the heaviest jazz cats I knew. And they were tearing up. Wow. All right, Tim Pleasant, who is that? Now, is this someone that I... I, I had an association? Um, I, believe, I believe a much deeper association than the, than the aforementioned Charles McPherson. I believe it was, some, mm. it was somebody you actually studied with. Harold Jones? You got it. Ah, Harold, Jones, Harold Jones. He was 15 years old driving to strip clubs, playing all night with John Pierce and Joe Hunt. And the, these guys were older than him. They were wearing sunglasses during the uh, during at night. They were wearing sunglasses yeah. at night, yeah. and uh, yeah. and and they teared up when Charlie Parker died. It was the first time you ever heard a bird, dude. Harold, I could not oh, yeah. believe you. Can you talk about how you connected with Harold? Because man, I'm going to tell you, man. I mean, he's done his time with Basie. Obviously, he's killing it with Tony Bennett. Yes. but man, yes, one of the. I, I got a chance to hang with him at the drum shop in um, in San Rafael. Uh, we really connected. Uh, I love that cat dearly, man. He could really yeah. play his ass. So how, talk about how you met him and what you uh, what you took away from that. Well, you know, going back to like you know my first year or so of drum lessons in Chicago, I used to go down to Roosevelt University, which is downtown, and my instructor, uh, his name was Ed Perumba. Haven't seen him since I was a teenager. But I, I walked into lesson one Saturday, and there's this other guy. I didn't know who he was. I mean, of course, I, I knew of the Basie band and, and you know, whatever. But uh, he, he said, hi, my name is Harold. I'm, I'm subbing for Ed. And it was just like a whole – he was the first cat that really opened my eyes, you know, to, like, what I need to listen to and you know emulate and, and learn from because um, it was just a whole different approach and he was all about like just swinging you know getting good time good ideas he told i knew who T tony williams was but he said you know listen to tony listen to philly joe um you know those cats you know have it going on and uh you know just uh he he was just he was a godsend, really. I mean, you know, I, along as I progressed, you know, studying and, and, and getting older, I would have, you know, started, I would have learned, gleaned from just listening to, to records, but to have someone in front of you telling you, like, this is what you should do, you know, based on what I know, you know, because I know. And, um, I mean, ever since then, I, I was, you know, a, a, listening to as much as I could and, and playing along with, I, I would say that m most of my education uh, was just listening 
to records and trying to play with records and just studying what these cats did. But yeah, Harold. No, I mean, I was going to say, because I did two interviews with Harold and one in person and I'll send it all to you. You're going to really love it. But, uh, Oh, that, that would be great. You're going to have a ball. But, I mean, and, you know, he, he was playing at that time. He was playing with Sun Ra pre-orchestra. He was playing sock hops oh with, Sun, like, straight ahead. Wow. Straight ahead. Wow. I mean, because wow. we're, we're talking, like, early 60s or late 50s. You, yeah. Is that right? Yeah. You, when you were going to Roosevelt, that was, like, late 50s? Well, I would say um, 60, okay, I started taking lessons at 15, so that would have been, like, 1966. Interesting that me. he was there. Because, you know, because he also played, uh, you know, Kennedy. Kennedy came into the White House, and jazz was still America's popular music at that time. And yeah, he yeah. had all the ambassadors from around the world coming in with their kids, and they asked the kids what kind of music you want to hear. And they said, we want to hear some jazz music. So um, there was a kind of an uproar because um, – Paul Winter had just won a um, Collegiate Jazz Festival Award, so they invited his band, which had Richard Evans, who was the most ridiculous bass player from Chicago. Yeah, Harold Jones yeah. was in that band, uh, Warren yeah. Bernhardt, and a lot of people were like, are you kidding me? Where's Louis Armstrong? Where's Dizzy? You know, where's Duke? How could you not bring those guys? Right. But, you know, it was just, Harold was at all these, he's, and he's just the sweetest freaking guy, and I cannot yeah. believe... I mean, the fact that you were touched by him and the fact that you were, um, you know, to me, it's almost just like soaking up being in the presence of these people. And I think that that's the hardest part about, you know, for so many people um, in any genre of music is that all these masters of the music were readily available, completely accessible. And in a lot of ways, yeah. a lot of them died broke. I mean, it's really a tragedy. Philly, oh. Philly Joe was pawning drums off people. It was a tragedy. But, you know, yeah. Blakey was yeah. hooked on, you know, it was, I'm not saying, that I, yeah. I, I, I want to believe, you know, at 42, I, I, I sit here sort of trying, and I, again, it's about promotion, not preservation, but I, I sort of have this fantasy about what things were. And I realized that if I was actually living through it, it might actually be one of the more depressing things. I almost don't want to leave this fantasy. But that being said, yeah, Harold's one of those guys that through and through knew how to, to sing for his supper and could really play his ass off. Uh, and and oh, yeah. and and I just uh, to, for you to be able to learn under him is yeah. is really a blessing. Now here's a, just another quick little yeah clip about him is is uh, like. My my brother, who is like seven years older than me, um, he was, and my father, partly responsible for me getting to hear like a lot of jazz. I think my brother was, you know, and I don't know, he was out of the house and well, not out of the house, but he was an adult and he had his own money and he was buying records, a lot of uh, jazz, our Blakey and Jazz Messenger records. But he also bought this Eddie Harris. Um, oh. Exodus, Exodus to Jazz. Exodus to Jazz. Yeah, the first million. And, yeah, that that record was the first million selling. That sold a million records. That was the first record wow. that went. Yeah. Went, wow. Yeah, that Harold was on that. That was great. Yeah. Well, you know, I I, I was intimately, uh, you know, familiar <laughs> with with that recording before <laughs> yes, I yes. met Harold. Yes. And then I when I when he said I'm Harold Jones and then, like drums and then I kind of put two and two together and. It, Oh man, 
you're on uh, Eddie Harris's, and then that was like mind blowing to me. And you know, just like a kid, you know, knows nothing from nothing. You know, all of a sudden he's in front of like a great drummer. You know, I just totally blew my mind. And I mean, you know, honestly, I, I never saw him again. To this day, I, I have not seen him, uh, except for you know, maybe a, a couple of appearances on television which i saw actually on youtube you know with tony bennett and all well i'm gonna i'm gonna i'm gonna give you his phone number you should give him a call he's 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 the man yeah i'm gonna give you his number because the guy is freaking he's gold he's out where does he live i think he's out in mill valley you know he's out in marin county mill valley california i'll I'll give you his number he is the greatest freaking dude Uh, i i you know i wanted you to just from your own perspective Just talk about your concept of the the music. I, I hate labels. I mean, I, I, I people call it jazz, but if we walk down the street and ask 20 people what their definition of jazz is, you get 20 different answers. I just wonder right. about if you could talk about the sharing and the community of it because all these guys that I never met, um, you know, they were tough people, but they also, I mean, all they wanted to do was pass along the knowledge. They wanted to share the knowledge. They wanted to pass along the information to keep growing the music. And a lot of it had to do with the fact that they were getting ahead in their lives. They could play live. They could be in the studios. Not all of them. Some of them got ripped off. But they were not hoarding. We have a hoarding problem. We have a greed factor problem today in our society. And it's directly reflected in the music. And I just wanted you to talk about... It, why it's okay to share knowledge, especially as it relates to music. And because without it, it how, I don't know how it's supposed to continue. Well, you know, um, I, I think it's all about sharing knowledge because that's, that's how younger guys are going to learn. You know, like if I am a, well, I'll, I'll kind of give you like a real world, world example. Um, I'm, I never really taught much uh, throughout the years, but I have been asked to give a few lessons here and there, blah, blah, blah. Um, within the last couple of years, I, uh, I live in the desert in California, so uh, Palm Springs. Mm-hmm. So about 50 miles from here is a great um, high, arts high school in a town called Idlewild. It's called Idlewild Arts. And it, it, it's essentially like going to college as a high school student, basically. I mean, they, they have major, ma- uh, majors like classical music major, jazz major, um, art majors, photography, and such. But I, I, I was recruited by a friend to, to just give like lessons to three students. And my, my whole approach was just to kind of give them a foundation of, of how it is to swing, but also like just giving them, you know, link after link, record after record of all the jazz greats, you know, from, you know, the 50s and, and so on, just to kind of give them an eye. This is what jazz is, um, you know, like, uh, this is what you should aspire to be. So when, when I was teaching them, I, I was just trying to pass on, um, like, universal knowledge of how it is to swing, uh, you know, different styles within the jazz uh, 
thin jazz, um, whether it's like straight head bebop or, you know, kind of more esoteric, if you will, um, post-bop kind of concepts and stuff. And I don't know. It's, it's just, um, you can't be greedy, um, because it just doesn't do the, you know, the music world any good. Let me ask you something though, because I I don't know I I just released this interview I did with um, <clears throat> I think one of the magical parts of my show is just the idea that I've been able to leapfrog over um, the boomers and kind of get into uh, beatniks and or people that predated what people think. Like everybody thinks that Sly Stone created funk music, but actually it was a guy named Johnny Talbot and the Thangs. Were you hip to Johnny Talbot and the Thangs? Oh. That's a new one on me. I'm going to have to check it out. So, 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 so he said, this is what he, I was just transcribing the interview. He's, um, he's been ripped off countless times. He said, he said, um, cause you know, he was in Oakland in the early sixties and outside of Dyke and the Blazers and, um, Jimmy McCracklin. I mean, Sly was nowhere to be on the map. He, and this is what he said. He goes, the Montgomery brothers, because, uh, I mean, uh, uh, Wes had a room at the Booker T. Washington Hotel in San Francisco. And he said the Montgomery brothers were playing jazz. They couldn't hang with blues musicians. You can make a blues musician a jazz musician, but you can't make a jazz musician a blues musician. Jazz comes out of the blues. It doesn't go the opposite way. If you tried to make a little white boy from Walnut Creek play country western, that would be hard for him too. That music was born out of a lot of patience and plowing fields and anybody who didn't do that can't play the blues. You can go from the bottom. You can go from the bottom up, but it's hard to come down. And I guess that's the other part is if you start, if a lot of people think that, you know, they're going to start at, um, you know, kind of blue or a love supreme, um, they have to go back farther because the the jazz yeah. i wanted you to, I, to me i i mean a lot of people i think would scoff at something like that johnny talbot was the grandmaster of funk and he played he he basically said sly got on the ed sullivan show because he integrated his band and he softened up the lyrics in his music okay so it wasn't as raunchy mm -hmm. but i mean can you mm -hmm. talk about your experience even if you didn't play a lot of blues gigs the idea that blues is the foundation of it all and i think if cats don't go back far enough or quite i mean we're we we still have a lot of issues in our society as it relates to uh you know integration and racism and plenty of stuff we can't exactly mm -hmm. go back um to the plantations nobody's thankfully sharecroppers or plowing fields or things like that but i mean you have to live yeah. you have to live the blues in order to play it and uh or to a degree, you have to be able to play the blues before you play jazz. And I just wanted you to talk about your foundation in the blues because and when I hear modern jazz today, I hear a lot of technical, um, a lot of facility, a lot of technique um, and sophistication, mm -hmm. and I wind up staring at the wall because it is, I, I don't get any feeling out of it. I don't, I don't feel the blues. I don't, hear, I don't hear it. I don't feel it. And I wanted you to talk yeah. about – how you, you know, maybe even subconsciously how you merged. I mean, Chicago was, I mean, Phil Upchurch told me, you know, he'd go down to Market Street oh, and, yeah. you know, like freaking all the blind Dobro players were playing down there. And I mean, it's just like, right. you know, it's just like, it was yeah. blues. It was, people were singing the blues. I, I just wanted you to talk about 
how you've been able to integrate that into however intellectualized the music got. If it doesn't have the blues, you can't feel it, you know? Yeah, well, it's it's like a it's an earthy thing, you know, and it's like you were saying, uh, if you start with kind of blue and go go from there up, um, you know, it, it's um, you're missing a lot. Yeah. Um, I just because of my situation, I really never got a chance to check out a lot of what was going on in Chicago, just by virtue of either my age or. Uh, n- not being able to get around or, or hang, you know, with, you know, different cats. Um, for me, uh, my, I kind of started, you know, like kind of in the middle and then moved up from there, um, you know, started with uh, maybe Blakey and then kind of skipping to Tony and going up from there. But w- when I got to New York, I realized how much I missed like even playing with, you know, some blues players just having fun, I realized, man, I haven't done much of this. And it's kind of, I know what the blues is and I know who B.B. King is, but at the same time, I really don't. And, you know, not necessarily having to live, you know, in the in the Mississippi, Mississippi Delta, you know, to get the feel. But, um I, I agree with you. you. You can kind of glean as much as you can, but, um, you know, if you, I don't know, there's value in, in going back as far as you can uh, to, to capture an essence, uh, listening to, you know, like the old, you know, masters, Muddy Waters. I, I can't remember a lot of the, the cats yeah john lee hooker i mean all the you know it's like john lee hooker yeah no i mean i guess that's my my question is you know not that you've given it a lot of thought but just because i was transcribing this interview with johnny talbot and he's talking about it's you can it's easy to go from the bottom up starting with blues yeah but it's it's hard to go from the top down and i think that if you get all intellectual about the music which is what's happened to jazz music in the last half century then uh you're, you, 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 if there's no blues in it, it's just going to become some sort of intellectual yeah. exercise. You know, I mean, I think it's really so. Even though you maybe, I mean, just the idea of the ability to play. I mean, that's the point is that even all the Sonny Rollins, Alan Toussaint, John Coltrane, Ch- Charlie Neville, Cannonball Adderley, all those guys walked the bar, you know? I mean, I know they were older than yeah. you, but they were all yeah. in R&B bands. Even though they didn't love the, it was not that sophisticated, they knew, they yeah. played the blues. They knew the blues. They'd play honky-tonk bars uh, with cowboys, with guns, you know, and walk, I mean, yeah. and then they played bebop, and then they got into bebop, okay? So then, you know, you're they yeah. were rooted in that rhythm and blues before they got into the sophistication, but... Can you just talk about? Do you th- do you agree with him? Like it, you can go from the, from the bottom up, but Absol- you, yeah, go ahead. Absolutely, absolutely. Um, because, like you know, blues is the foundation, and if you are grounded in the blues, you know, you know, like you start sprouting, you know, like the creative sprouts start to come out of. It's like a lotus flower, you know? Yeah, exactly. Exactly, yeah. And speaking for myself, I 
I just hadn't. So the best I can do, or I would say anyone could do, is just to go back to it. You know, you, you're probably not going to live it, but go back and listen. You know, a lot of times when I, I, I hear like, you know, these, these, you know, the John Lee Hooker and, and Muddy Waters and then, you know, this person and that person, it's very, it, to the untrained ear, it may sound raw. That's the thing. It's raw. It's raw. It's got emotion. Exactly. It's raw and it's got emotion. And that emotion is, you know, is, is a big part of it. And I think, like you were alluding to, uh, with a lot of the modern players are just what's happening now. There's a lot of emotion that's missing. It's 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 like technique, and you know what I can do with this time signature and 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 how slick I can be. But sometimes there's the emotion is not there. Um, you know, just playing with a, like a, a the singer, I can't remember this woman's name. Um, I did a gig with her. She was from Chicago, um, and she, she may have been a little bit older than me, but I, I think she grew up around that more than I did. And when I got a chance to play with her, I was hearing like the emotion and just you know just tearing your heart out, you know that kind of thing. Which, I mean, even um, even you listen to, I mean, listen to uh, you know Love Supreme all the way through. It's like it's burning emotional music. It's the blues. I mean, it's, yeah. it's, it's, it's an anguished cry for world peace, whatever it is. Um, I think yeah. it also has to do with, um, no, 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 no disrespect to them. I mean, they, they were just born into it, but if you're going, if you're going to Berkeley or, I mean, every school has codified, you know, everyone's going to the Academy now if you're able to pay or go on a scholarship to a school for 50 grand a year to play music, you're not really living the blues, you know, I mean, you're just, you're, you're not, oh, I, yeah, you yeah. know, well, that's it. I actually had this discussion with a buddy of mine who my wife and I had a dinner with his wife. He's from Kentucky, but you know, he's a drummer. He's not a full-time musician, sure. yeah. but we were talking about jazz schools and, and this and that. And then he brought up, you know, the fact that Chick Corea had maybe had a, like a half a year of studies at some school. I don't know. No, he, no, he went but to, no, Eddie he, Gomez said that uh, Chick went to Juilliard, didn't like the teacher and left. That's what happened. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, I, I basically, I told him, listen, you, you know, you, as everyone knows, you don't have to go to, you know, Berkeley or, or Juilliard or USC to play jazz, you know. Um, right. So, um, you know, it's that's what they do, you know, and it can be good and, you know, it, it may not be so good. Uh, I just can't imagine paying 50 grand a year, you know, to get a degree in, in jazz and then, like, hopefully if, if you're <laughs> talented enough... <laughs> But it's like, I mean, it's like, like, I mean, can I ask you going back to Iowa? I mean, I know that you were playing out live. Uh, I mean, the idea of learning in the academy was very different when you were going there. Oh, yeah. I mean, you were out on the band, you know? Yeah, well, uh, my buddy, John Tinney, guitar player, who is from Iowa City, and we hooked up. He was a music student. 
we were in there was no jazz program at Iowa. Exactly. Exactly. You can't te- exactly. There were there, there's no yeah. you can't teach you can't go to school for jazz. Yeah. Anyway, go ahead. Well, anyway, you know, I, I really didn't know what else to do. So I, I, I played drums and I figured, you know, I'll study music or whatever it is to get a degree and then go teach high school band or something. But my learning was, like you said, on the bandstand. I mean, we always found little bars and, you know, outdoor venues to just play out, you know, whether we're trying, you know, trying to do a blues thing or like a funky thing or just, you know, crazy far out jazz or, or what. No, I love it. Um, that's ah, where, I, yeah. that's how I learned, you know. Even learning with someone that's as inexperienced as you are is, is still learning because that other person is listening to stuff that maybe I wasn't listening to and, and he's laying it out and dancing. So I don't know, you know, the, I, you know, there's value for sure, like, you know, studies in, in college and such. Um, let me but, ask you, let me ask you, we're going to have to, we're going to have to do set two uh, soon, but I, I, I wanted to ask you, um, <clears throat> you know, it's been very different. I mean, the one, just the ability to have live spiritual communal music of any kind um, has just not happened during the pandemic. And I wonder right. if you feel, I mean, we don't have a crystal ball, but does your instinct and intuition tell you not that music won't be appreciated of course it always is appreciated but do you believe it will take on an added significance and be seen as a real profession coming out of probably the darkest time that definitely in my lifetime i mean do you feel that if once we get back to some kind of normalcy that musicians might again be treated like professionals the way dizzy was i mean listen dizzy and miles train they weren't millionaires but you know what they lived okay they did okay they yeah. were they were oh, considered yeah. geniuses, and again, they made a lot right. of money overseas. But that being said, what do you believe? What is your? I don't even want to know what your hope is. What do you, your gut tell you about? Um, because I believe that prior to coronavirus, cats had opportunities to play. They could tour, but they barely were yeah. getting. They were barely making it. They they were not being compensated for it. What what, what does your gut tell you about coming out of this well, thing? My my gut changes. Uh, in fact, I was like, it was a low gut. <laughs> like after my, my last gig was on March the fifteenth, and it, you know it wasn't a straight head gig. It was just a gig, sure. you know, like a playing at a restaurant, playing tunes, and just having fun. And then when this whole thing came down, um, you know, I, there was hope that things were going to bounce back, which it didn't. And then uh, when I meet when. Basically, I, I was kind of pessimistic because I'm thinking, like, once this thing does lighten up and music starts to come back, it's going to come back in stages. Um, mm-hmm. It's going to be a solo a solo artist, you know. Be, you know, I, I understand what's happening with uh, restaurants and, and, you know, music venues, like they're just losing money. So, you know, they have to... They don't have the money. Once things start to open up again, they're, they're going to have to kind of build. But, I, I, you know, for myself, I was thinking, well, you know, like it's probably going to be a solo piano or guitar player, and then maybe like in a couple of months later, they're going to add a bass player. Exactly. And yeah, exactly. It's like a tiered, a tiered thing, get, yeah, yeah. Right. By the time they get to a whole band, it's going to be 
I may be like 80 years old. But I don't know. <laughs> my feeling is changing. Yeah, no, I did. Changing, you yeah. know, because, because I, I, around town, I'm, I'm running into like the local people that have their businesses and they, they're talking about, yeah, we want to get back. We want to get back to having music again. But in, in terms of, um, you know, whether there's going to be more respect for the jazz community, I don't know. Um, I would hope so, but I think, you know, jazz has always been in, you know, from my experience, like an art form that you were saying is greatly underappreciated in this country. And I just tend to believe that it's really not going to change things. Um, maybe in, in, in some respects, just because people have not been able to go out and hear live music or whatever. You know what but, I mean? What I really meant was not so much, because I, I agree with you. What I meant was, because of the of the suffering and the trauma, that there'll be some blues injected into the music oh, that we've like never heard. The emotion. Yeah, the emotion. Well, yeah. I believe so. that. I believe so. Um, and I, I can basically cite an example. Um, you yeah. know, it's a small example, but not having being able to play gigs, um, I have been kind of going, you know, like to different locations where friends gather and, and play jam sessions. And I can tell because of not being able to play out, yeah. not being able to play with their friends, that there's just a, a whole kind of breath of fresh air, I think. Like, it's just like we have this opportunity. We're, we're gathered together in this room. Uh, we not, may not be able to do a gig next week, but let's take advantage of, of this moment. And I think, you know, speaking for myself, but I'm kind of like, in in a in 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 a headspace where I I really want to create. I'm not trying to force anything, but I I think my appreciation getting together with like-minded musicians wanting to create is is just creating like you know like kind of a higher level, I guess. Of, Absolutely no. I mean, it's the, I mean, I I feel like the creator, as Pharaoh Sanders says, the creator has a master plan, and I I'm not right. Pollyannish about. I mean, I. It, it's it'll always be hard. It's never been easy being a creative musician, um, and in this day yeah. and age, you know, it's really um, pretty like uh, depressing because there are people at, especially at the pop level, having huge success within the music industry, and they couldn't play live if their life depended on it. the The, the technology has surpassed humanity, so there's issues. But I just right. think that. You know, to catch a fire, to feel that fire in the belly, not just the angst of not being able to play at all, but, you know, recognizing that, um, you know, I used to not understand when people would say to me, well, I, I play every sh gig like it's a matter of life and death or it's, you know, and I didn't know what that meant, but now I do yeah. because a lot of, yeah. I mean, I don't, you know, I mean, I'm thankful and I hope to see you on the bandstand really soon. I'll come out to Palm Springs. I'm living in Tucson. So, I mean, I, you know, I mean, I'll, but, oh, yeah, yeah. but, you know, like, you know, I guess, you know, there's no, there's no, we don't have the crystal ball. I just, I, to me, the, the lack of authenticity in music, the amount of mechanization of music today, it's um, very disturbing. Uh, it's, it's, um, it's, it's conforming to a, to a degree that is, not what music to me is about. Music is about complete liberation and freedom. 
with the rudiments, yeah. but at the same time, um, that people would come back on the bandstand and totally be themselves and totally play with, yeah. you know, and that, and that would be my hope, you know, and hopefully they could walk away and maybe get ahead because, um, it's hard. It's just, it's hard well, in, in this business. Yes. I, I, I think, you know, like in our lifetime, I, you know, for me, this is the first <laughs> event, you know, like worldwide event that just shut me down basically, right. and, and everyone else. And with you, with us experiencing that, um, I believe that that's something that's, you know, in back of everyone's mind. And it's like you were saying, whoever made that statement, like I'm going to play every gig, like, you know, it's a matter of life and death. Yeah. 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 Matter of life and death, because you never know what's going to come down the line. And now we kind of got a taste of it. Um, you know, there's things that I'm thinking about now that I just, uh, for instance, I, I would like to do a recording of my own. I mean, I've been on other people's recordings sure. and, and such, but, but, you know, I just kind of always considered myself a sideman, blah, blah, blah. But now, you know, I, I, I want to do stuff, you know. Yeah. Tim Pleasant uh, lead, band leader I'm, I, as a leader. Definitely. Well, you know, I, I, I have ideas, but like, you know, like who knows I better I better do it now or soon because you know, I, you know what it is. I, I mean, there's just this, it, the point is that um, here's the bottom line, man. Like there is a void, but the void presents an opportunity for, for you to be as proactive as you want. And to me, like yes. when you have this open palette, you know, um, yeah. you, you know, so, so, but it is interesting. I mean, it literally has ground, to a halt and you know slowly but surely um you know they're yeah. they're opening up big venues like 15 percent capacity it's strange it's going to be yeah. different but maybe right, right i can only hope that there will be um rebirth and regeneration and a continued growth in the blues and the and the music that we love so i mean tim pleasant we will sure. pick this conversation up may was i'm so psyched um, that Aaron connected us, man. I, it, it was really an honor to, to yeah. hang with you, man. Yeah, Aaron is, um, he's an inspiration, you know, like... Dude, the greatest cat, man. Yeah, just all the stuff. I mean, not only is he a great drummer, but, I mean, he, he knows a lot about the business and just has a sense of what you were talking about, like the music, you know, from an, an organic sense as opposed to, like, you know, just mechanicalized and such. So he's He's a Great cat. Dude, he's the ultimate well, he's the I ultimate punk rocker, you know? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I hope it wasn't all over the place. But I, no, no, I, that's I, what I, my, I you know, I mean, everybody, the bottom line is this. If you had fun and you don't remember what you talked about, then I'm doing my job, you know? Because that, that was a great yeah. hang. We, we covered a lot of ground. Oh, man, appreciate it. I appreciate Harold's number too. You know, Yo, I'm going to hook this. Up. I'm going to del. I'm going to deluge you with interviews and Harold. You got to call Harold, man. He will be tickled to death. He, well, I, I I love that cat. Yeah, I, I can't wait. Yeah, to get a, get much a love to you, man. Be safe. Looking forward to catching you live in the not too distant future. All right, Jake. Appreciate it. Be cool, man. Take it easy. Later. Bye. Bye. Tim Pleasant, um, great drummer, great cat, has been around the block, as we all have, and as we continue to plow forward through 
this unprecedented time. Big thanks to Aaron Spursky for that connection, looking to inspire at all costs. This is the Jake Feinberg Show. We'll see you later.